0: Today is a day that uh, some of us have looked forward to for a long time, and that's the day that, uh, ah, I'm not going to stop now, Jimmy, <laughs> that Jimmy and Annie are exchanging vows together. And uh, that's a banner day, and I and Mary Lee and I have, uh, in this particular relationship, have been given the great privilege by Jim's parents and also by Annie's parents of uh, allowing their children to love us, and uh, I'm very grateful for that, and I hope all of you will make a point of coming to the wedding and celebrating this wonderful day. And we'll remember to pray for all of our couples who have recently been married, that God will be, uh, from the beginning, protecting them from all of the things in our, in our world today which seek to destroy their marriages and their vows, and that he will make their homes a place of, of great light and joy and love. I'd ask you, please... To As we come to our time of studying God's Word, I'd ask you please to turn to the book of Galatians, the fourth chapter again. We're going to pick up again with the text that we studied last week, beginning with verse, the bulletin says 12, but I'm going to start with verse 8. Galatians 4, 8 through 20. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you." This is the word of the Lord. And you say, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to to God. If you just want to say thank you, God, that's fine, too. It's the thought that counts. Now, as we saw last week, this section of Galatians isn't primarily theological. And I say that because the rest of Galatians is. It's not composed of true statements, but it's, it's very, very personal and very, very painful. It's an emotional cry of grief and anguish by a father who's in pain because of his son's rebellion. The Apostle Paul's the father, and he is in torment because the Galatians are turning their backs on God. They are returning to the idolatry that God had rescued them from. They had been slaves when God poured out His love on them in Jesus Christ, rescuing them from sin and death and hell, releasing them from their bondage into freedom, into true freedom. In John eight thirty six, we read, "...if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed." And so here they are. They've been made free by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But now they're exchanging their royal privileges of being adopted sons of God with perfect freedom. They're exchanging this for slavery to the law. And through this slavery to the law, slavery to the elemental principles that are behind that law, namely the principalities and powers of darkness that are behind every single scheme that does not lead us to place our full trust in Jesus Christ. The Galatians are exchanging truth for error. They're exchanging grace for law, freedom for slavery, the fatherhood of God for the fatherhood of the devil. So no wonder the Apostle Paul is beside himself. His sons and daughters in the faith are turning their backs on his Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 8, Paul points out that formerly they did not know God and were slaves to those who are not gods. And really, if you stop and think about it, that is an astounding statement for a former Pharisee to make. I mean, think about this. This guy was a guy standing there holding the cloaks of those who were stoning Stephen for believing in Jesus Christ. And now, how is he prepared to describe those very men who were stoning Stephen, well, he describes them as having been in bondage to the elemental things of this earth. In other words, he's saying that uh, the Pharisees, of which he used to be one, are in bondage. Now, the one thing that the Pharisees made absolutely clear in the text of the Gospels is that they're slaves of no one. You remember them saying that. And you remember Jesus said, no, you're slaves of Satan because if, if you... If, if you really were uh, children of God the Father, then you would believe in the one He sent. And so He tells them very clearly that they are in bondage. But of course, you know they go back to their heritage, and it would be exactly as if somebody were to say today um, to to an American that that we're slaves, and we say, no, this is the land of what of the free. And, uh, you know, it would be as if we were insulting our national heritage, uh, as if somebody were saying that uh, America is actually not the land of the free, but it's the land of bondage. Well, the Apostle Paul describes his former life as a Pharisee and all those who were involved in the Jewish religion at this time as being in bondage. It would have been incredibly offensive to them. Uh, Their whole national story, their ethnic story, was a story of how they used to be in bondage, but that God showed his love and affection on them, and he he brought them out of bondage into the promised land. And here Paul is describing this life that they are now returning to, this life that the Pharisees and the scribes and and the Jews are committed to is a life of bondage. Now, I hope your brain is active when I'm preaching. And I hope when you read Bible, your brain is active because so often Satan seduces us into having our brains inactive precisely at the time they should be most active. Stop and think today. What would, for instance, uh, the Pope have to say about Jews today? Now, you've read the news this last week, right? So... There's some awareness of how the Christian church today, if you grant that the Roman Catholic Church is the Christian church, how they're relating to the Jews today, right? What's what's the news? The news is that the Pope, what? He's visiting a synagogue. All right? And what's the message that's going there? Well, gracious people would say the message there is that we are continuing to repent for the Holocaust, want nothing to do with anti-Semitism. But is that all that we should think about when we see a great Christian leader? Now, again, that's assuming that the the, the Roman Catholic Church is a Christian church going into a synagogue. Uh, In other words, here's my point. What would the Apostle Paul say today about Jewish synagogues? Well, you don't have to go far to see. It says it right in the text. He says that this whole way of being is what? it is bondage to the elemental things of this world. Now, do you think that that's the message the Pope took into the synagogue? Now, you can argue that when you go onto to somebody else's turf, that's not the time that you say the truth that's most painful to them. And I'm willing to grant that, but I hope that you and I and the Pope, to the extent that he knows the true God, are prepared to say what the Apostle Paul says, because, of course, this is the issue. If the Apostle Paul had wanted to make common cause with the Jews, he would never have said such a thing. He would never have described his former life as being in bondage to the elemental forces of this world. So you can either say one of two things. You can say that back then the Apostle Paul could say it because they didn't live in an anti-Semitic age. In fact, the Jews were the prevailing power. Paul was the oppressed one, and therefore he was able to be a prophet to the oppressor. But today, we're the oppressor, and so we have lost the ability and the right to be a prophet to the oppressed ones, namely the Jews. Or you can say that God's truth is overarching all time, all places, all people groups, all races, and that we have the same message today. Now, it may be that we change the way the message is given. But, you know, there's a huge difference between changing the way the message is given and changing the message, and if the message that's given today is never that Islam, that Judaism, that Hinduism and Buddhism and Confucianism and just plain New Ageism, that all of these are bondage to the elemental forces of this world that there are not various paths to heaven, that we can't make common cause and say, well, it's the same God, but you call Him Allah, and, and we call Him, or you call Him uh, Yahweh, and we call Him, and you know, uh, you know, the day will quickly come when you will see that we have something for you. I mean, that's completely bogus. And it doesn't bear any resemblance to what the Apostle Paul has said to the Jews. I mean, you realize that the Apostle Paul is contending in Galatia with... Whom? He's contending with Judaizers. That's the name that's always been given to them. What are Judaizers? Well, Judaizers are people that want to turn Christians back into Jews. Judaizers. All right. Now, uh, please, and I'm, I'm doing something that, that the Apostle Paul does right now. Please, don't, don't think I'm your enemy because I'm telling you the truth. Don't think I'm the enemy of the Jews because I'm telling you the truth. I'm not. Is it wrong to call the Jews to Jesus Christ, their Messiah? No, it is not wrong. I once had a man say to me, uh, he was the son of an Orthodox rabbi in California, and we were on a plane together. And I had that man say to me that, uh, that Jewish evangelism by Christians was uh, a, a modern genocide. All right? A modern genocide. Is it? Is it genocide? Is it the destruction of the Jewish nation, the Jewish race, to call them to their Jewish Messiah? I mean, you understand. If you give in out of a desire to be nice and, and sensing the political climate, all right. if you give in to this whole movement to never be prophetic to the Jewish people, you have cast them into hell. Something the Apostle Paul, I remind you, was unwilling to do. And you say, well, thank God I'm not a pastor. (laughs) And I say, look, you have all kinds of opportunities in your life to be faithful or unfaithful to Jews. All right. And why am I, you know, harping on this? Well... I mean, it's completely different today than it was 2,000 years ago. Almost everything is flipped completely on its head, but it's really exactly the same. And that is, all of us will find ourselves out of a desire to be accepted, to be politically correct, to go along with other people in such a way that makes us appear to be reasonable people and not fanatic fundamentalists. To do exactly the thing Paul refused to do, which is to cast the Jews into hell and to not love them. You see? So really, the book of Galatians is very pertinent to our life today. The post-Holocaust reality of Judaism. Alright? And again, we're faced with the issue of whether we are willing to be faithful to the plain statements of Scripture. And the plain statement of Scripture is that... Both the Gentiles in Galatia and the Jews were what? Were in bondage to the elemental forces. That's not a positive statement. And it is still true today. Now, you might want to, you know, talk about uh, Hindus in India because there's no political pressure to be nice to Hindus in India. And you might make fun of all the naked people that are on their their houses of worship and their gods, you know. And, and, and it might be safe to do that, but then there might be a holocaust against the Hindus. And in 50 years, you might think, oh, well, I better be quiet about that. None of what we do should be a function of whether we think other people will be sympathetic to us as we make our case. You know, it should all be based on the fact that Scripture has spoken. Scripture is clear. All the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. And so Christians are not being intolerant, they're not being unkind, they're not being rigid, they're not being fundamentalists, although, yes, we are, and praise God. All right? We are being compassionate, true, loving, godly, loving, compassionate, true, loving, compassionate, loving, 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 loving when we speak truth. Now, I keep coming back to loving because that's, of course, exactly where people would deny we are. They would say that loving people always agree with you. <laughs> you know, if you love me, you'll agree with me, you know. Read a good book, say, that's a good book. Why? Because we agree with it and he agrees with us, right? Well, thank God we haven't had a father like that, eh? Okay, so here we are, verse 9. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known God by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. And last week we spent a long time talking about the fact that uh, because they were seeking circumcision, they were seeking a liturgical calendar and special days did not mean that there was no observation then or in church history of special days, but not special days that were a function of impressing God and earning righteousness and improving our standing before God. The Galatians were not content to cling only to Jesus, but they wanted something more, something they themselves could produce and control that would give them security and hope outside the completed work of Christ on the cross. And the tone of Paul's letter demonstrates what great danger there is in this matter because we see that Paul, in this whole section, is acting much as a mother bear might act in the protection of her cubs. I think the older I get, the more I see (laughs) all of my foolishness. And I remember a trip my wife and I were making in southeast Alaska where we went to visit this man that lived on this house. that was built on top of sequoia trees that were probably three or four feet wide, and they were like 50 feet long. And so it was this monstrous raft, you know, with this huge house on these huge, huge tree trunks. And uh, so when the tide came way in, his house would rise. And because he lived in this huge tidal basement, there were tons of grizzly bears. So we went in and took him an offering of uh, gas or kerosene or... I'm not sure what it was, whether it was diesel fuel or gas or what... But anyhow, uh, long trek along the rocky coast of this island out in southeast Alaska, and he lived all alone. I don't know, know, know how many hundreds of miles the closest human being was to him. Uh, I do remember the day. It was the day that uh, the, uh, the Korean, uh, I think it was Korean, the Korean airliner jet was shot down. Was that Korean? Okay, Korean. That was the day we were there because he told us. <laughs> I thought that was so interesting to be back in the wilderness and have some guy tell you what's happening in the world. So anyhow, we show up here, and there's scores, literally scores, of grizzly bears all over the place. And uh, he has had a very close relationship with his wife, who uh, who had died by then, with these grizzly bears. They look to him as a papa, right? And, And they have a good relationship with him, but not with us. But like a fool, I went out, way out onto the tidal basin, to get close to the grizzly bears. Life is cheap when you're young because you're a fool. And uh, I was trying to get as close as I could. And this wise man was way back there with a gun, but I was way out in the tidal basin. My wife was way back with a gun. Everybody was way back with a gun, but stupid Tim. And I remember walking along and what the bears were doing was grabbing into the water uh, the uh, salmon and they'd bite off their heads, and then they'd bite off their bellies and throw them down. They don't eat the whole salmon. And so I'm watching them, and it's interesting. all of a sudden I look up, and what I realize is that I have come in between a mother grizzly and her cub. And the mother grizzly is about as far from me to Stephen and Moxie, and the cub is about as far from the wall. I'm that close, and I'm right in between them with water in front of me and land behind me. So I very, very carefully backed up until I was nowhere in between the mother and her cub. Now, at the time, I think I really didn't believe that grizzlies could move quickly. But they can. And uh, recently we were in Africa, and I have always thought that crocodiles and alligators can't move quickly. They can. And when I say quickly, it, it, is, it is a gross understatement. I have a movie on my computer if you want to see it. <laughs> I'll show it to you. Well, think of the Apostle Paul and his response to what's going on in that church. And I think this image of getting in between a bear and her cub is a perfect image of what's going on with Paul. And it's why he is so personal so gutsy, so intense here. It says in Proverbs 17, 12, Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Now, my point isn't to talk about being a fool, but my point is to say this, is, this image of getting in between a bear and her cubs is an image that everybody understands, and this is what's happened with Paul. This issue is very personal to Paul. Now, when I say it's personal, when I say he's writing personally, I do not mean to say that he is taking personal offense at the Galatians despising or rejecting him. Verse 12 says, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. And this is a plea for mutual sympathy in their relationship, for the kind of tender and simple acceptance and love for one another that used to characterize their relationship to each other. But Paul is not speaking out of bitterness. He's speaking out of grief. And there's a huge difference between bitterness and grief. If it were bitterness that caused him to think and write such things, then God would be displaced in the letter of Galatians. And the Apostle Paul would be front and center of the letter. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? Now, I understand it, and the reason I understand it is that as I look back on my pastorate and think on this, I realize how many times the issue has been me instead of God. And how often today... In what I do in leadership, the issue is me and not God. Now, I think that this is probably an extremely common thing for pastors, to to forget that they serve a master and to think that they serve themselves. Now, I don't want to take your mind off of me and my failures, but I do want you to think about your failures. And I want to say to you that every person in a position of leadership has this same temptation. Now, about now you might be wondering, well, how does it affect me? All right, if you're a father, what is your goal with your children? To have their approval and friendship? To not have their bitterness? Or to form them in the character of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is your goal with your children? Now, at this point, I know some of you are thinking, you know, bug off, Tim. Um, You've talked to me privately. Now, don't talk to me publicly. Look, this is true for every single father here. I'm not singling anybody out. Although some of you, I'm happy for you to think I am. But ask yourself as a mother, what is your goal? Is your goal that when your daughter grows up that she will still be your friend? Or is your goal to form her into the image of God? What is your goal in your position of authority? If you own a business, if you're a foreman, if you're a professor or a teacher, what is your goal? Is the goal the approval and acceptance and good vibes of those who are under your authority or is, is it to form them into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ? I was thinking yesterday there's a discussion on a blog among uh, mostly people that have their doctorates and teach. And then my brother and I are invited to participate, which is kind of humorous. Uh, And I was thinking about how radical it is to say to people with PhDs who have the position of teaching at colleges that they should profess. (laughs) Now, what's the irony? The irony is what's the name of the title that they spend their lives hoping to get? Professor. So what are you professing? People today would argue, well, you're just disseminating objective truth, you know, uh, theorems, you know. um, No, you're professing. Even in the way you teach mathematics, maybe especially, I don't know, I'm ignorant of mathematics, but even in the way you teach mathematics, you are professing your faith. And you're either forming your students into the character of Jesus Christ Or you're spurning them, and you're failing to lead them to your Lord and Master. How much more true is this of us as fathers? The Apostle Paul is not taking this personally, and he is taking it personally. He's taking it personally in the sense that he's expressing his grief and pain, in the sense that he's using every aspect of his relationship with these people, to pull them and to wheedle and cajole, to do everything he can to get them back to God. But he's not wasting time talking about how his feelings are hurt. You know, he's not copying a posture as a victim. He is. But you don't get the sense that, like, if you stop going the direction that he doesn't want, that then he'll be happy. Uh, You get the sense that if you stop going in the direction that he doesn't want you to go, God will be honored. That's always at the front of everything Paul is doing, even at this point when he gets most personal in this letter. And he engages in similar personal appeals in other places. In 2 Corinthians 6, he says, Speaking of himself, our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You're not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us. Father, come on, son. I'm not your enemy. Give me your heart. The theme of Ted Tripp's church, I mean, not church, but book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Over and over again, good books only make one point. And that's all they do. And the entire book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, which every single one of you who either is or will be a parent should read this. And I'm I'm, I'm saying this because we now have two families from his church here. So he's at the front of my mind. Would you guys stand up and introduce yourselves, please? (laughs) This is... We're very, very happy to have you. Jeff and his family and the Bakers are very close friends, and they have joined us to do the work of the ministry here. And uh, we're very happy to have you. And the minute we first got a call from Stephen, what? How many? How long ago? Uh, A year and nine months ago. um, The reason we were so immediately prepared to trust Stephen and his wife. And to put them into the yoke of leadership was because if Paul sends Timothy and says, I have no one else like him, what do you say? Well, we're, we're going to have to check him out a little bit, you know, Paul. Well, that's the, that's the respect I have for Ted Tripp. Anyhow, coming back to the book, what is the book? It's an extended monologue on one theme, and that is the theme, my son Give me your heart. And that's always what a good father does to his son, is he pleads for his heart. Now, when he gets the heart, what does he use it for? So that he has a friend the rest of his life who's rich and who can take care of him in his old age? That's not what a Christian father does. A Christian father takes that heart and leads it to the love of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Do you understand this? And so this is what Paul is doing. Paul always uses everything he has. You know, you think of the guy that's got like, you know, a sword. He's got a slingshot. He's got a bow and arrow. He's got a battle axe. He's got an AK-47. It doesn't matter. And he might even have some food. (laughs) You know, the path to a man's heart lies through his stomach, right? He'll use everything in his arsenal to bring them back to Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's doing here. And it's, it's very personal, but it's about God, not about Paul. He says in verse 13, You know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you didn't despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. And so he's going back and reminding them of the fact that when he came up to Galatia, for some reason, and I was going to go into this, but... I've taken too much time on other things. There's all this debate over what exactly was his weakness when he came into Galatia. And some people take the statement at the end of Galatians where he says, look at what large letters I'm writing, how big my hand is as I'm writing my handwriting. You know, this is me, Paul, here. All right. They think, well, he must have had a problem with his eyes. And they build on the fact that he then says, you would have even pulled out, plucked out your eyes for me if that you know, would have helped. Other people think it's malaria. Other people think that it's epilepsy because of another uh, construction in this text. Um, We don't know. We don't know what it was that was Paul's thorn in the flesh referred to in Corinthians. Um, But what we do know is that he was a disgusting creature. Why do I say that? Well, look. Look at the text. It says, you did not despise or loathe me. Now, who do you loathe? Well, you loathe somebody who you know, we saw lots of people um, in London who were loathsome, right out of a Dickens novel. They were lying uh, out in public, filthy, dirty, um, and lying there in the middle of the day. And they were loathsome. The kind of person that you you turn away from, like, you know, uh, the Pharisee, when he's uh, going by... the the victim of the robber, loathsome people. The Apostle Paul, and we see this referred to in other places in his letters, um, the Apostle Paul was not a strong, uh, handsome, um, tall... Not supposed to use names, but a name pops into my mind, and some of you will know him. He was not Lloyd John Ogilvy. If you ever saw him on television, his voice was like Curtis Rock, You know, when he spoke, the earth shook. I don't have anything against Lloyd John Ogilvie. I just think he fits the part perfectly. You know, handsome to kill for. Deep voice. What a presence. And on television to boot. And so he doesn't fit the part at all, does he? It's a liability, isn't it? It's actually a liability. Because the Apostle Paul says... Okay, fine, you're, you're, you're super apostles, you know. I'm nothing. Okay, I'm nothing. And then, bam, he hits them. Bam, he hits them. He loves them. He pushes them. And he even has the audacity to brag about his weakness and thorn in the flesh and to say it was precisely through that thorn in the flesh that God showed that the power is in him and not in Paul. So when we have preachers who are have deep voices and are large, which I am, and who are in I don't know, whatever, you know, is 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 looked up to in the world's eyes, we better be careful. Because what this is is a seduction away from the power of God. When the strength is in a man, it's not in God. And so the Apostle Paul when he came, it says that what? They were tempted to despise him and to loathe him. But it says that they did not do this. Instead, they gave him in his hour of need, in his disgusting condition, in his weakness, in his uh, whatever his weakness was, they gave him themselves. And they accepted him as if he were an angel. And then he says something that's radical. He says, not even like an angel. He says, but like Jesus Christ himself. Now, how does that work? Well, the only thing I can come up with is when Jesus says, I was sick. And you took care of me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. And so I don't think it's impious for Paul to say that they received him as if he were Christ himself. I think that's how we're always called to receive those who are loathsome. And don't deny that there's nobody that's loathsome to you. Well, I'll watch you for a day and I'll, I'll show you who's loathsome to you. Okay, it may be your husband. It may be all men. Ah, where did that come from? Okay. So he goes on and he says, look at how you treated me. He says, verse 15, where is the sense Where then is that sense of blessing you had? In other words, their feeling for him. They felt he was a blessing. They felt he was God's message to them, the gospel. He says, for I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. I think that the sense of this is not pointing to the fact that he had a malady with his eyes. I think he did. But I think it's in the sense of, you know, um, he'd give his eye teeth for that truck. Or he'd give his right arm for that job. That's what I think is going on here. They would have plucked their eyes out for him. And so what we see is that the relationship between the Apostle Paul and this congregation was very tender. And he goes through all of the descriptions, and then he ends in verse 16 with this statement. He says, So, have I now have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, um, I said last week, and I say again this week, Uh, This is the constant lament of elders and pastors, of prophets, of uh, those who have spiritual leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ. That when they speak the truth, that the people to whom they speak it treat them like an enemy. And it's true in this congregation. If you were to take all the people that leave congregations that honor God... I think it would be fair to say, and don't leave because they're moving away, I think it would be fair to say that probably 90% of the people that leave, leave because they've been told the truth and they now consider the one that told them the truth to be their enemy. And the truth is, and I'm not going to be your enemy for telling you this, the truth is, you yourself have or will be tempted to commit this sin. Now think, the Galatians are getting a letter from Paul. They don't have to listen to the letter. When that letter came, comes, they can treat that letter exactly the way the, the leaders of, uh, uh, of God's people treated the word of God in the time of Jeremiah. And what did they do? They ripped it to shreds and they threw it into the fire. Okay? This letter has no power. If the Galatians want to, when they get this letter from the Apostle Paul, they can rip it to shreds and throw it in the fire. All right? And maybe they don't want to do something that's so damning. Anybody that sees that kind of knows what's going on. And so maybe what they're going to do instead is listen to it and say, "How, what a wonderful leader we have. And then having seen the reflection in the mirror, they're going to go and they're going to make absolutely no changes to their life. They're still going to observe these religious and they're still going to get their kids circumcised. You know, they're still going to really care not what the Apostle Paul thinks of them, but 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 what? They're really going to care what the Judaizers think of them. I mean, isn't that really what's going on? You'd like to say it's just an objective intellectual debate. But it's not. It's personal. Because if you go on in the text, look down here. Look at what comes next. What does it say? It says, if I can find my first page, it says this. He says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And then he moves over to his opponents and he says, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Okay, people, come on. What's going on here? You know very well what's going on here. These false pastors, false shepherds, false prophets want disciples. They want people in their church. They want people that will follow them. And so they're leading the souls that Paul has cared for away from Jesus Christ and away from Paul. They're speaking ill of Paul, like the... Super apostles of Corinth. They're speaking ill of Paul. They're alienating the affections of the Christians from Paul. And they're saying, if you want to be accepted by us, if you want us to respect you, if you want all God can give you, all right, you know, can you hear it? Then you will observe these religious days. You're going to get circumcised. In in short, you will become a Jew. But they would never say that because that's too bald-faced. They just give all of the Jewish things and say that this is part of God's plan. Okay? And the Apostle Paul describes them. How? Well, he says very, very clearly that what they're doing is seeking them to shut them out. Okay? Shut them out of what? What's well, it's very clear. Shut them out of the kingdom of God. In other words, they are willing, for the sake of having disciples, to shut those disciples out of the kingdom of God. That's what's at stake. Now, do you think the Apostle Paul wants disciples so much that he's willing to see people lost for the kingdom of God? When Paul gets personal, do you think it's about him? Do you think it's about his needs and and his psychological adjustment and his sense of well-being and his, his affection for them and their affection for him? No, it is all about their souls. Now, we're going to return to Galatians, as you know. And so where should I end? Well, I want to make two comments. Number one, brothers and sisters, there is legalism in the church. But we don't live in a legalistic day. We live in an antinomian day. We live in a day that has no tolerance for there being any standard by which you can measure the fruit of our faith in Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, we live in a day that hates fruit testing. Uh, a day when uh, our Lord's statement, by their fruit you shall know them, is one of the most underquoted or non-quoted things uh, in every pulpit of America. And yes, there are churches that think that if you homeschool, that you're a real Christian and you're headed to heaven. Yes, there are churches that think that if you speak in tongues, you're a real Christian and you're headed for heaven. Yes, there are churches that teach that if you're baptized, you're a real Christian and headed for heaven. In other words, there are churches that do fall into replacing the work of Christ and his righteousness with the work of man and man's righteousness. And those have to be guarded against. But you know what I think our primary bondage is as a fellowship and other fellowships like us? I think it's bondage to the opinions of the world. I think it's a desire for approval from other people, and that approval takes an infinite variety of, uh, of roads depending on your personality and your background and who you care about. It can be a need to always appear to have a perfect home. You know, it can be a need to have children that 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 are you know walk in walk step with each other and have hair that's perfectly combed and. You know, I don't know what it is for you, but the need for approval and for approval of the right people. I mean, after all, who wants Donald Trump's approval except people that want a job from him? Even then, they probably despise him privately, you know. But my approval, you know, now I'd like Tim's approval or your dad's approval or your husband's approval or your children's approval. And I just say to you, look. In the book of Galatians, it's very clear what's at stake. The Galatian Christians have to choose between having the approval of Paul and God or having the approval of the Judaizers. And at stake is not just their well-being here. At stake are their souls. They are being seduced so that they would be kept out of the kingdom of God. And listen. Listen. If you want the approval of the people you work with, if you want the approval of the academy, all right. if your bottom line in life is to get a doctorate and then get tenure, it's hopeless. It's absolutely hopeless. You cannot serve both God and the academy. You can't do it. If your approval is to climb the ladder and get to be a partner at your firm, if your approval that you seek is to be known as a doctor who's balanced and who never makes an ethical issue out of things that shouldn't be. Uh, if your desire is to have a wife who thinks you're nice, <laughs> it's hopeless. <laughs> Don't worry, she'll never think you're nice. You're a man. She can't think men are nice. I mean, it's, it's in the nature of you know, things. It's a joke. All right, laugh. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking of the cartoon in the New Yorker that a woman looks at a man she says, Honey, I can never fully approve of you because you're a man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> This is what is at stake in this church is approval. It's very different from our situation today. Nobody in this church is going around telling you that you'll be fully acceptable to God if you begin to observe the Sabbath. All right? I'm probably the closest you'll get to that, and I don't think I've ever said anything remotely close to that. And I certainly have not tried to convince any of you to have your children circumcised. So you have to contextualize the text. You have to think, what does this text mean for me? And what I would ask you to do is think of who you want most to have their approval. Who is it? And then think, what compromises with what God has said to you are you willing to make for that person's approval? And then what am I going to say? I'm going to say, who did Paul want his approval from? Who did Paul live for? For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Now, that's not something I've ever heard from anybody except my older brother, Joseph, who put it on his application to Harvard and didn't get accepted. (laughs) He put down, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And my father almost told him to take it out before the application went out. And guess what? Two years later, my brother was dead. Okay? What is life to you? Christ or the approval of your wife or your children or the academics you work with? What is life? You know, is your entire life aimed at just trying to get a husband? You think that's going to make things better for you? If you seek first his kingdom and your righteousness, is that what the text says? Seek first His kingdom and whose righteousness? His righteousness and what? What's the promise? All these things will be added unto you. Okay. With Paul I say to you, trust God. Live by faith. Let your faith work itself through love. Love other people. Love God. And all these things will be added to you. If you'll stop thinking that your homeschooling or the way that you manage your home or the way that you manage your business or how much money you give away or what church you go to or on and on and on. You don't date, you court. You don't court, you betroth. Whatever it is, okay? (laughs) If you send all of that away, all of that away, and you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness... All these things will be added unto you. All the approval that the Galatians were desperate to have would absolutely never come to them. You think those Jews were ever going to accept Gentiles as anything other than second best? Satan's always like that. He always promises he'll give you good things if you just give him one good thing. You give him the one good thing because you're a man of your word, and then he never, ever, ever gives you one of the good things he says he's going to give you. Okay? He just doesn't do it. So here's a clue. God has said, and God doesn't lie, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We'll return next week. Let us bow in prayer.